Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. The pill, or the birth control pill, or oral contraceptive pill, has been around since about 1960. And with a 91% effectiveness rate, when taken correctly, there's no doubt that it was a major, hard-won breakthrough for women. For the first time in history, we were in control of our reproduction, which helped us find safety from dangerous birth conditions at the time, gave us more autonomy in relationships, and provided us the ability to work rather than be limited by pregnancies that women may not have been ready for or wanted. Forget the maternity leave debate. Back then, there was no debate. Married or not, you had to quit your job when you got pregnant or hide it until you couldn't hide it anymore. I don't know if you realize this, but it wasn't even that long ago, just in the early part of the last century, that it was illegal to send any contraceptive information through the U.S. mail. I'm not talking about sending birth control pills or contraceptive devices. I'm talking about pamphlets, leaflets, flyers, or medical information about contraception. And it was illegal to the point of being punishable by going to prison, which actually did happen to women like Emma Goldman and other advocates of women's access to contraception and health information. So on the one hand, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool, or as you might even say more accurately, dyed-in-the-womb feminist in that my mom was the first one in her college to wear slacks to her college campus. I'm loath to criticize what has become a mainstay in women's ability to control when we do and don't get pregnant, especially during a time when our reproductive rights are being threatened. The stigma is still there for women applying to jobs in the question that's not supposed to be asked, but sometimes is, are you planning to have children anytime in the near future? Further, being on birth control is considered a sign of responsibility in women. Yet women are bearing the full burden of contraceptive risk. In fact, many of my young patients in their teens have already been put on the pill by their parents or doctor, whether to prevent pregnancy, to regulate their cycle, which is actually an illusion because it blocks ovulation and prevents the natural cycle for the treatment of ovarian cysts, acne, or other conditions. There are things that we need to know about the pill and our safety. And one big question I have to ask is, if we're trying to avoid excessive environmental hormonal exposure in our food, water, cosmetics, and household products, do we really want to be taking them intentionally each day as a medication when there are other options available? It's at least worth asking ourselves how empowering that really is, especially when four out of five women who are sexually active have been on it at some point, and many women are on it for 10 years or more. In medicine, there's an important concept called informed consent, meaning that your healthcare provider is supposed to give you information on the benefits and the risks of the option that he or she is recommending, as well as all the other existing options. While the pill isn't likely to cause serious harm in most women who do use it, it is associated with a long line of moderate to mild to severe effects. From the insert package from the Merck oral contraceptive pill Desigen, an estrogen and progestin-containing pill, 
we find that the pill can cause the following risks. Risk of developing blood clots, heart attacks, and stroke. Smoking and the use of oral contraceptives greatly increase the chance of developing and dying of heart disease. Women with migraine, especially migraine with aura, who take oral contraceptives also may be at higher risk of stroke. Gallbladder disease. Oral contraceptive users probably have a higher risk than non-users of having gallbladder disease, although this risk may be related to pills containing higher doses of estrogen. Liver tumors. Although rare, oral contraceptives can cause benign but dangerous liver tumors. Cancer of the reproductive organs and breasts. Breast cancer has been diagnosed slightly more often in women who use the pill than in women of the same age who do not. This small increase in the number of breast cancer diagnoses gradually disappears during the 10 years after stopping use of the pill. Some studies have found an increase in the incidence of cancer of the cervix in women who use oral contraception. Lipid or fat metabolism and inflammation of the pancreas. In patients with inherited defects of fat metabolism, there have been reports of significant elevations of plasma triglycerides during estrogen oral contraceptive therapy, which has led to pancreatitis in some cases. Now remember, this is information straight out of a package insert for a pharmaceutical that's prescribed. But did your doctor ever review the risks of a pharmaceutical with you before handing you a prescription? Has a doctor ever suggested you read the package insert or have you actually ever pulled it out of the package, sat down and read it before starting a pharmaceutical? You can't truly have informed consent if you don't have the whole picture. When it comes to oral contraceptives, aka the birth control pill or the pill, the truth is that we have not gotten the whole story. And look, I wanna give you the straight story. One of the largest studies to date in the United States, the Nurses' Health Study, followed thousands of women for over a decade and found no overall increase in deaths in long-term pill users versus women who had never used the pill. And a massive European study of nearly 50,000 women followed over 39 years found that women who'd used the pill actually had rates of death from all causes at similar rates to women who had never used the pill. Nonetheless, the side effects shouldn't be downplayed. There's research data and there are the experiences that real women report, which are too often dismissed. My goal in this episode today is to share some of the information that you need to know so you can make a truly informed consent for yourself and help your clients or patients if you're in healthcare practice and help your daughters to make the most informed decision. I understand and know from my own medical practice that for many women, the pill may feel like the easiest choice, and it may feel like the easiest choice for you right now. The pill continues to allow women control over our reproduction, but to have true control over our health and our reproductive health, we have to know what hormonal contraception can do to our bodies, our minds, and our health. There's a reason nearly 64% of women discontinue use of the pill due to side effects, and it can increase your risk of serious health problems. I want you to know at least the risks and the warning signs if you're on the pill and have information on alternatives because there's a bitter side to the pill and we have to know the risks before taking oral contraceptives. So what are some of the risks? Well, let's kind of go through these in terms of the major problems that the pill can cause. Let's talk about the side effects, dangers, and hazards. Number one is depression. 
The pill increases your risk of depression even if you've never had depression before. Perhaps one of the most compelling arguments against the use of the pill for most women is depression. A 13-year study of 1 million Danish women found that being on the pill was an independent risk factor for needing an antidepressant. In fact, the study, the largest of its kind published to date, which was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2016, found that about 23% of women ages 15 to 34 needed to go on an antidepressant medication after starting the pill. And an independent risk factor means it's the only thing that caused it. These women were not women who had ever had depression before. And the statistics were even more dire for teens who were 80% more likely to experience depression if they were prescribed the combined pill, which is estrogen and progestin, and twice as likely with the progestin-only pill. If you've been on the pill and are struggling with depression, it could be the pill. And if you struggle with depression and are considering the pill, it might not be the best option for you. If you do go on the pill and find yourself moody, emotionally erratic, depressed, anxious, feeling like you're suddenly manic or having panic attacks, don't dismiss this and don't let anyone else dismiss it to you either. It can be a side effect and can deeply affect your quality of life, well-being, and safety. One of the next triggers that we see happening for women's well-being with the pill is weight gain and metabolic syndrome. The pill can cause weight gain, insulin resistance, high blood sugar, and high cholesterol. The pill mimics the hormonal state of pregnancy and with it causes metabolic changes, including elevated blood glucose or blood sugar and insulin resistance. In pregnancy, this is how your body ensures that the baby gets enough fuel for growth and development. Less sugar goes into your blood cells, more of it stays circulating around, gets into the placenta and gets to the baby. But this can lead to metabolic syndrome, make you gain weight, and albeit the pill has been associated with only modest weight gain, according to studies, although three to 10 pounds is not insignificant to most women, it can also cause inflammation. Now, the thing is, when you're pregnant, you're only pregnant for 10 months. And then within some weeks after pregnancy, your body goes back to its normal blood sugar state. When you're on the pill, you might be on the pill for several years. I have patients who have been on the pill for 15 or 20 years before deciding to come off of it. So they've been exposed to this high blood sugar, high insulin resistance, high cholesterol milieu in their body as a result of the pill for a long time. Depending on the hormonal combination that you're taking, the pill can adversely affect cholesterol levels leading to high cholesterol, total cholesterol, high LDL, which is usually considered the bad kind of cholesterol, and low HDL, which is usually considered the protective kind. And this can last for the entire duration that you're on the pill. It can also lead to high triglycerides. The pill commonly causes minor and sometimes significant elevations in blood pressure. These risks are even higher for women of color. It's important to discuss cholesterol and your health with your healthcare provider before starting the pill if you plan to take it. 
And if you start to have changes in your cholesterol or blood pressure or blood sugar, don't shrug this off as just a side effect or common and acceptable. And don't let anyone else convince you of that either. It's important to take the impact of these side effects on your health seriously. The next concern to consider is huge and it's blood clots and related risk of death. The pill increases risk of developing blood clots, particularly if you're a smoker, overweight, or older. When you take the pill, your blood coagulates more and you become more at risk of clotting, especially if you're a smoker and you're at higher risk if you're having PCOS or you're overweight. PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. This risk of clotting naturally also goes up in pregnancy because your body's trying to protect you from hemorrhaging with the normal blood loss that occurs at birth or if you were to have a miscarriage, for example. And in fact, the risk of developing clots for most otherwise healthy women is higher in pregnancy and six weeks after birth than when you're on the pill. However, and this is an important however, you're not pregnant for three or five or 10 years sequentially. The pill poses a long-term unnecessary risk of developing blood clots. And this has been one of the most serious consequences that has led to deaths in women of all ages on birth control. Keep in mind the duration again of pregnancy and postpartum is limited, right? The postpartum blood clotting changes last about six weeks after pregnancy. You can be on the pill for many consecutive years, leading to extended clotting risk, which is certainly something to consider when selecting contraception or using oral contraceptive pills for acne or other conditions and for pregnancy prevention as there are effective and safer alternatives. Again, this is straight from that drug insert package I mentioned earlier, some really sobering data. For women aged 20 to 44, it's estimated that about one in 2,000 using oral contraceptives will be hospitalized each year because of abnormal clotting. Among non-users in that same age group, about one in 20,000 would be hospitalized each year. So one in 2,000 on the pill, hospitalized for abnormal clotting. In non-users, same age, only one in 20,000. For oral contraceptive users in general, it's been estimated that in women between ages 15 and 34, the risk of death due to a circulatory disorder is about 1 in 12,000 compared to non-users, which is 1 in 50,000. This is significant data, ladies. So please, again, remember, most women who take this will not have these major life-threatening problems. But if it happens to your sister or your daughter or you, one is 100%. So I'm not saying this is not a choice that we can make. We have to just make it with our eyes open intelligently and having the full information that may be assumed to be given to us in a contraceptive pill package, but which is not verbally communicated to us or made sure that we understand, which is the nature of how informed consent is supposed to work. Another consideration is headaches and migraines. Headache is one of the most common side effects reported when women start taking the pill, and it's a common reason that women stop taking it. For many women, the side effect goes away after a few months of staying on the pill. Interestingly, though, women with a strong personal history or family history of headaches appear to be at risk for developing new headaches related to the pill. 
Now, the data varies on migraines. Some women find that they improve. Others find they stay the same and some report worsening of migraines. What's very important here is there is strong evidence of an increased risk of ischemic stroke. Ischemic means lack of blood flow. So lack of blood flow to the brain leading to a stroke in women with migraines, especially but not only with women who have migraines with an aura who are using an oral contraceptive pill. So in my practice, I do not recommend them for women with migraines at all. I also recommend women who experience new or increased headaches on the pill to find another birth control method for their best health interests. Now, one area of controversy in the medical literature, but really a complete non-controversy amongst those of us who work with women in real-life clinical practice, is the pill's impact on hormones not ending when women stop taking the pill. So the pill leading to hormone imbalances and post-pill syndrome, which I'm saying with quotation marks around it. While statistically there's no proven correlation between discontinuing the pill and a lack of return of women's periods, and in fact, statistically, something like 98% of women are said to return back to a regular menstrual cycle within 32 days of coming off the pill, countless women report hormonal imbalances after stopping the pill. And some studies do demonstrate that this is a measurable problem. Post-pill amenorrhea, which means either not having a period or having periods that are so irregular that they're so far apart and you can't determine if you're fertile, is one of the most common symptoms that my patients report and other women I know who work with women who have come off the pill acknowledge. Usually, Women's cycles will stabilize within a year and it doesn't cause permanent infertility, but it can cause fertility challenges for a long period of time. I'm going to be doing another podcast and an article sometime in the future on post-pill syndrome, which is not a technical term. It's what a lot of us call it in the sort of health world of working with women who have observed this phenomenon and what you can do to restore your hormone balance and natural cycles. And I have a fun announcement. I am under contract with Harper One, my publisher, for a book called The Hidden Hormone Epidemic, which will be coming out in January 2019. So stay tuned for more on that. Of note, I have worked with numerous women who have developed other hormonal problems after stopping the pill. The most notable one is terrible cystic acne. And this has even been in women who weren't struggling with acne before they started the pill. They went on the pill for a different reason, like contraception, stopped the pill, and suddenly are struggling with really severe cystic acne. So that's not fun. It certainly represents a hormone imbalance and something to be aware of. Let's talk about the pill and autoimmune disease. The pill has been associated with conflicting reports about whether it increases the risk of developing and worsening at least two autoimmune diseases, inflammatory bowel disease, particularly ulcerative colitis, as well as lupus or systemic lupus erythematosus. I personally caution women with these conditions to avoid the pill altogether. And it is medically advised, so standard conventional medicine, that women with new onset of symptoms or pre-existing disease with one of these autoimmune diseases or another autoimmune disease, despite proper treatment of that autoimmune disease, discontinue taking the pill. So let me repeat that. If you have new onset of symptoms after you start taking the pill, symptoms of an autoimmune disease, 
stop the pill. If you have a pre-existing autoimmune disease, particularly ulcerative colitis or lupus, which are known to be associated, and you're getting proper treatment and you have exaggeration, exacerbation, or recurrence of symptoms, then you're supposed to discontinue taking the pill. Autoimmune disease is one of the top 10 leading causes of death in women in the United States, and estrogen has been unequivocally associated with autoimmune disease risk. So this is not a risk to be taken lightly, as are none of the others, and definitely more research is needed. I mentioned early in the podcast that the pill can increase your risk of certain cancers, including cervical cancer. Now, to be fair, and this is true, proponents of the pill like to tout that there is a decreased risk of colorectal cancer, uterine and ovarian cancers with the pill, and that is accurate. But oral contraceptive pill use has been linked to an increase, albeit modest, of breast cancer and a potentially significant increase in the risk of cervical cancer and central nervous system cancers. And yes, though it can decrease some forms of cancer, taking the pill is not a recommended way to prevent cancer. There are healthier ways to reduce that risk. So something to be aware of, particularly if you have a family history, but this is, this is big. Significant increase of cervical cancer is a major consideration. The pill has been associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease. It can put you at risk of heart attack, particularly if you're a smoker, overweight, or have other risk factors. The earlier oral contraceptive pills were associated with a significant increased risk of heart attack and cardiovascular related deaths, but the subsequent reduction in the estrogen levels in the pill has made them safer than earlier versions. But again, I've already reviewed all these other risks with you and the risk of clots. If you're young, relatively healthy, and you're a non-smoker, statistically, the cardiovascular risks don't appear to be super high. However, they do increase over your normal risk if you start taking an oral contraceptive pill. The exception for this is considered women who smoke, whose risk of heart attack is considered too high to outweigh the risk of pregnancy. So this is one kind of confounding situation where if a woman's risk of heart attack or death is considered high, very high for pregnancy, that's the one time that medically physicians can justify that the risk of the pill would be lower than the risk of otherwise having a heart attack. Given the number of women who struggle with their weight and the increased risk of OCPs in women who are overweight, this risk cannot be ignored. So it's really important to find out whether the risks of the pill for you personally make it too bitter a pill to swallow. Now, there's one small you know, mention uh, I want to make of the pill interfering with thyroid hormones. Sometimes I think that some of the uh, thyroid activists out there might be making a little bit more of this issue than, than um, might be warranted based on a review of the medical literature. But it would be remiss not to mention that a less common but still worrisome potential side effect of the oral contraceptive pill is that the estrogen component, like any estrogen, raises blood levels of proteins known as thyroxine binding globulin, thyroxine is a thyroid hormone, cortisol binding globulin, and sex hormone binding globulin. 
As a result, more thyroid hormone is bound to these and your blood levels of these thyroid hormones, cortisol, and sex hormones can increase. However, just because those levels are increased, it doesn't always mean that you have less of the active forms circulating in your bloodstream. So your thyroid levels may look abnormal when your thyroid function is actually fine. So it can lead to misinterpretation of your thyroid labs and inappropriate treatment or ignoring of treatment that you might need, depending on whether we're talking about hyper or hypothyroidism. So if you are getting tested for your thyroid levels and you're on a birth control pill, it's important to make sure that your person reviewing the tests understands that you're on a birth control pill and the implications of that for your thyroid labs if it's an estrogen-containing pill. Now, what do you do if you need the pill for medical reasons like PCOS, heavy or painful periods? Well, first of all, I would put air quotes, or if I in writing, I would put quotes around need for the pill. Oral contraceptives can be temporarily effective for reducing a number of symptoms and conditions. For example, acne, polycystic ovarian syndrome, irregular periods, and endometriosis. But the pill does not get to the root causes of these conditions. It is in one way or another altering your hormones, altering your chemistry, or suppressing your cycle. So for example, nutritional insufficiencies or food triggers, high levels of exposure to environmental toxins, gut imbalances, or slow detoxification issues can all be related to acne or PCOS, whereas endometriosis can be and is related to imbalances or abnormalities in immune function triggered and inflammation triggered by hormonal cycle changes. So I totally understand. I really empathize and treat women in my practice and work with women students in my programs who are struggling with these conditions, which can be even cystic acne can be debilitating socially, emotionally, endometriosis, pain, heavy periods, severe menstrual cramps are all can have just such a dramatic impact on your life. So I'm not in any way diminishing that. The pill, however, is not healing you from the inside out. And in the long run, the pill can make some of these conditions worse. So for example, I mentioned acne earlier. Also women who, who have PCOS get put on the pill because it helps regulate the cycle and lowers testosterone and can temporarily help with acne. The problem is though, that for many women, PCOS is a syndrome of insulin resistance. And as I mentioned earlier in this episode of Natural MD Radio, insulin resistance is one of the things that being on the pill can cause. The hormonal changes like high testosterone are happening in PCOS because of the insulin resistance and the messages that gives to the ovaries to tell them to produce too much testosterone. If you have insulin resistance and you're given birth control, it just makes the insulin resistance worse. It's not addressing the root cause of the problem. It's tamping down some of the symptoms while worsening the root cause in a potentially dangerous way. Yet, no research has been done on the potential for increased risk of oral contraceptive use in PCOS, though this is an acknowledged 
risk in the medical literature. Sometimes your symptoms are so severe that you might choose to use the pill under the supervision of a healthcare professional who can help you bridge a natural and hormonal approach. But please keep in mind that I really don't recommend the pill as an optimal long-term solution. Once you start to trace your symptoms back to their root causes, you can start to see how everything in the body is interconnected and you can often start to heal painful periods, PCOS, acne, and so many other uh, symptoms and conditions naturally. What I want to do is switch gears and talk with you about what you can look for if you are on the pill so that you know what some of the warning signs are, and then what contraceptive methods you might consider as an alternative. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into contraception in this podcast. This is going to be an overview, and I know it's a topic that many of you have many questions on, so I will do another episode on Natural MD Radio at some point down the road on various contraceptive methods. So I'm going to just give you a, a rundown today of some of the most common ones that I most highly use or discuss in my medical practice. But first, what should you look out for if you're on the pill? There are warning signs to look out for. And if you experience any of these, it's important to immediately stop the pill and get medical care. Sharp chest pain, coughing of blood, or sudden shortness of breath, all of which can indicate a possible clot in the lungs. Pain in your legs, particularly in your calves, or one calf, it can indicate a possible clot in the leg. Crushing chest pain, heaviness in the chest, sudden onset of fatigue, shoulder and arm pain that you didn't have before, nausea, all of these can indicate a possible heart attack. Sudden severe headache or vomiting, dizziness or fainting, disturbances in your vision or speech, weakness or numbness in an arm or leg, all indicating a possible stroke. Sudden partial or complete loss of vision, indicating a possible clot in the eye. Breast lumps, indicating possible breast cancer or fibrocystic disease of the breast. Severe pain or tenderness in your abdomen, suggesting a possible ruptured liver tumor. Difficulty in sleeping, weakness, lack of energy, fatigue, or a change in your mood, possibly indicating severe depression. Jaundice or a yellowing of the skin or eyeballs accompanied by fever, fatigue, loss of appetite, dark colored urine, or light colored bowel movements, possibly indicating a liver problem. Ladies, let me tell you, these are the warning signs that are on the medical literature. This is not me trying to have a bias and scaring you out of using an oral contraceptive pill. These are the risks that we really need to be aware of for ourselves, but also for our daughters, our friends, and other family members, and certainly if you're in healthcare practice for your patients or clients. All right, so what contraceptive methods do I recommend? What are some of the options out there? Again, keep in mind, I'm going to do a deeper dive into birth control alternatives and other article, but I wanted to share that there are some safer alternatives to birth control pills. The first is natural fertility awareness. And I know many of you practice this. Some of you teach it. You may have other names for what you call your system of natural fertility awareness. When your hormones are imbalanced, your cycle is just that. It's a cycle that is ideally regular, predictable, reliable, and followable. The word menses actually comes from the Latin root 
word for month, as does the word moon. And that is the frequency that our cycle ideally synced to our natural environment would be about 28 days, which is the cycle of, of the moon. In my personal life, I actually use the term moon time to describe our cycles for this reason. I really like that connection to nature and that reminder of our connection to the feminine, the connection to the planet. I have to tell you, though, during the years, my daughters, who are now 23 to 29, were in that sort of tween to teenage years. They rolled their eyes when I said moon time. They would say, Mom, can't you just be normal and call it a period? So I switched for many years around my daughters to just keep them from, you know, banishing me from their lives uh, for being their woo-woo mom. But I do really like that term. And when you have a regular cycle and are able to pay attention to like several parameters, which include your personal cycle calendar, your cervical mucus, and your basal body temperature, which is your morning temperature upon waking, you can actually combine these findings into what's called natural fertility awareness or fertility awareness methods. These three methods in combination can lead up to a 99% effectiveness as birth control. But in reality, as one of my dear friends with three kids used to say, you like to something with an F when you're fertile. You know, I try to keep it PC because I know your kids are listening sometimes. So hopefully they're not asking you about that. But in reality, for most couples, the success rate is closer to 76%, meaning about one in four couples who use natural fertility awareness, 24 in 100 will get pregnant within a year using this method. So for the method to be effective, you really need to track your cycles, know your body, be aware of the fluctuations in your body, be aware of fluctuations that you might not even anticipate. So you might have a 28 day rock solid cycle and then you travel to Europe for a vacation with your sweetie and the jet lag changes your cycle and boom, you're ovulating sooner or later and find yourself pregnant, even though you always had a reliable cycle. But in general, it's quite reliable. I typically recommend in my practice that women who are using natural fertility awareness and really don't want to get pregnant combine the natural fertility awareness, particularly in that week around ovulation with condoms for extra security. Withdrawal is not an effective alternative, so don't rely on that to prevent pregnancy. Speaking of condoms used properly, they're actually 98% effective. Emphasis added on the used properly because the real life success rate is more around 88%. You have to be comfortable buying them. Remember to use them. There are problems with slippage and size. Uh, not surprisingly, most men overestimate the size that they need, which leads to slippage. But for the most part, if you use them correctly, they do work. A problem with condoms that I want to mention is that the lubricated ones often have ingredients that aren't optimal for your vaginal health. There is a company that I recommend. I've done some work with research for them and some representing of them, which is called Sustain Natural. It was actually started by the father who created Seventh Generation and his daughter. It was his daughter's idea and he had the business acumen. She added her business acumen and they've created a really fabulous company called Sustain Natural and they make 
as eco-friendly a condom as you possibly can that are free from the carcinogens found in most condoms and they use fair trade rubber if you do use latex condoms. And the nice thing is that their condoms and their lubes are both vagina friendly, they're pH friendly, which means they're not going to cause you to get yeast infections and pH changes that can cause bacterial overgrowth and irritation or dryness. Condoms are great when you combine them with an understanding of your body's rhythms and cycles. And there are a lot of different types you can get. The Sustain Natural, one of the things I really love about it is that they have really created a campaign to make women, particularly younger women, like some of you who are listening, feel confident going and buying condoms. This is a big obstacle to use as women feel really awkward. And there's reasons for it. I mean, women who go in and buy condoms compared to men, women get dirty looks. You know, they get smirks and jokes and snarky comments from men and women at checkout counters. The other nice thing is you can order them online. So ladies, you know, we need to take responsibility for condom use if we're going to use them effectively. Now, another method you can use is either a diaphragm or a cervical cap. Diaphragms and cervical caps are about 88% effective for the diaphragm, between 71 and 86% effective for the cervical cap. They work best when they're used in conjunction with spermicides, and I'm not a huge fan because those are full of toxic chemicals. And I feel like the whole thing can be kind of messy and inconvenient to keep up with, to remember to put them in, to take them out. And it's also important to remember that if you experience substantial body weight changes, if you have a baby, you have to be resized. You can't just necessarily use the same one you were using before you got pregnant and before a big weight loss or weight gain. When they do fail, it's usually because we forget to put them in or we forget to take them out and then they slip or we just don't want to deal with the awkwardness of them so we don't use them at all. So they're not my favorite, but they can be used safely and effectively. Believe it or not, other than the natural family planning and condoms, IUDs are my birth control recommendation of choice. IUDs are a little plastic or metal device that's inserted through the cervix into the uterus by a midwife, a family doctor, or an OB-GYN during an in-office procedure. I've inserted many of them. They are not comfortable to have inserted, especially if you haven't had a baby. And usually it does require a heating pack and some ibuprofen as pre-treatment and during the procedure. I usually would actually give, and I'm if you've read my articles, you know I am not an ibuprofen fan. It's probably the only time I really recommend it other than acute pain and you know, someone just really needs something right then and they don't have alternatives with them. But I would actually give my patients 800 milligrams of ibuprofen about a half hour, an hour before the procedure, hot pack, really talk them through it because it's uncomfortable. But they are the most widely used birth control in the Western world. They're very popular in Europe. They sort of fell out of favor here In the 1970s, there was an IUD called the Dalcon Shield. And because of the way the strings were configured, they caused massive infection and death in a number of women. I think there was just a massive class action suit. So anyone who's over 30 or, you know, your mom talks about IUD, it may be with some fear around it. But today's IUDs are actually generally safe, highly effective, and they're very convenient. So I know it's probably unexpected from me because I'm, you know, Miss Natural, but they really are great if you tolerate it. There are two forms of IUD for the most part, a plastic form and a copper form. The plastic form has 
a modest dose of hormonal contraception in it. Both are inserted in the uterus. They work in slightly different ways. I'm not going to go into it in detail here. You can actually read my article on my website, which is called The Pill Are the Risks Too Bitter to Swallow, where I dive a little bit more into some details about the IUD. There are definitely some risks associated with it. Uh, They can perforate the uterus when they're inserted. They can migrate out of the uterus into other parts of your body. So there's, you know, the, the risks are definitely there, but overall they're those risks, in my opinion, much lower than the risk of oral contraceptive and fairly far and few between, although not so far and few between that most of us probably have heard a story. And I have had uh, women who have come to me who have had that happen to them, not thankfully with any IUDs I ever inserted. But I will tell you that the other thing with IUDs is that about half of women who have them put in end up getting them taken out because they do cause cramping and bleeding. A lot of women, some spotting, a lot of women, if you just stick with it for about six months, the symptoms go away and they're very tolerable and they're really convenient because depending on the IUD you get, you can keep it in for a minimum of three years and as many as 12 years without having to change it and very effectively Um, And they don't typically cause long-term hormonal problems, although some women have reported that. And I will talk about that more when I do a future blog on and podcast on oral contraception. I do want to add a side note with the NuvaRing. I have seen women who have developed systemic hormone problems and changes. And while it's a form of birth control that can be simple and effective to use, it's along the spectrum of oral birth controls. It's not quite as extreme, but it definitely carries some of those same hormonal changes. And it has been linked to some high profile wrongful death lawsuits. I also don't typically recommend the injectable or insertable ones like Depo-Provera or Implanon or the new version Nexplanon, which I am certified to insert. But again, I just don't feel like they're, for reasons I'll go into in another episode, the the healthiest, most sort of hormone ecology, body-friendly methods. So all of these methods that I've talked about are options in place of oral contraceptives. If you're willing to put the time and energy into it, my preference is using fertility tracking, your cervical mucus calendar and basal body temperature. There are some great books. My favorite is the one by Margaret Knopfziger. I'm sure that there are wonderful websites. If you do natural family planning, I would love it if you would share some comments in the comment section for other women on your favorite methods. If you have any experiences with oral contraception that you'd like to share or other forms of contraception, you know, we all learn so much from each other and the community that forms around these podcasts, around the blogs that are associated. And I've put the link below the podcast for you and on my Facebook page are such powerful groups for women. So I hope that you will make sure to come hang out with me over at my Facebook page, Aviva Ram MD. And if you have found this to be informative you feel that this is valuable information for other women to hear about, please make sure to take a minute, if you can, when you're finished listening, to hop over to iTunes and drop a comment and give a rating if you loved this or found it helpful. Because when you give positive feedback, it elevates the visibility of this podcast and my other podcasts so that women like you, other women who might not know about this work, can also take back their health and with it, take back their lives. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Natural MD Radio. I will see you next week. 
hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.